Let's um, take our Bibles and open them up to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. That's on page 728 if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you. So Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, page 728. It had been a long night. I don't mind working the night shift. After all, I'm a fisherman, as was my father before me and my grandfather before him. Nights when the fish are biting, and so it's always been our family's way of life. But this had been a particularly bad, wearisome night. We'd fished all night long, and we had caught nothing. Nothing, not even a sunny or a perch for breakfast. Now we dragged our weary bones back to shore. We needed to get our nets cleaned up, and then we could get some sleep. That's when the preacher showed up. Early in the morning, and he was already fired up with God's word, drawing a crowd, teaching the people. Don't get me wrong, I kind of liked to listen to him, and he was approachable. In fact, he had spent time at our house. Uh, He healed my mother-in-law of a fever that we feared might take her life. No, he wasn't your average rabbi. Something powerful was at work in him, enabling him to, to heal the sick, to cast out evil spirits. He spoke with authority, and, and yet he was down to earth among the people. That's when he ruined my sleep. Here I am washing my nets, listening to, to him teach the people about these things when, when the crowd starts swelling. And, and so what does he do? He gets into my boat. And he says to me to row out a bit so he can teach the people from the water where his voice will carry. Well, what can I say? He did heal my mother-in-law and he had spent time with my family, so sleep would have to wait. I I row him out and I I keep her in place while he teaches on. Like I said, I I like to hear him talk, not like I had a choice stuck with him there in the boat. He's talking on about the times we're living in, saying that we're living in epical days, that that all God's promises for the future are beginning to come true, that the kingdom of God is at hand and that God's new exodus of redemption is beginning to take place and he can show us the way. He's telling us how to live in in light of this, in in a way that that pleases God, uh, caring for each other's needs and and loving others, being generous and trusting God for what we need. He says God is less concerned about some of the rituals of religion. And what he says makes sense to me. I I, I sense something in my heart waking up to to God in, in a new way that, that was, was long asleep and was dormant. Well, when, when he's done talking, done uh, with my boat, I think he might say thanks and let's go back to shore. But no, this carpenter turned rabbi turns to me, the fisherman, and says, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. You've got to be kidding. <laughs> deep water 
in the daytime. I'm dumbfounded by his presumption, not to mention his ignorance. What is he thinking? There's a couple reasons we fish at night. First of all, the fish come to the surface to feed at night. And second, at night it's dark, which means the fish can't see our nets and swim the other way like they're going to do in the daytime. And everyone knows that fish aren't in the deep water in the morning. So I want to finish cleaning my nets and go to bed, but he wants me to go day fishing in the deep water. I says to him, Chief, we've worked hard all night and we've caught nothing. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. I don't know myself why I did it. Was I just humoring him? Was it out of respect? I don't know, but out we rode and we cast our nets, wanting to get this over with as quickly as possible. While Jesus is there with us, seemingly enjoying his free chartered fishing trip. And then, would you believe it? There are fish. Lots of fish. Lots of fish. In fact, I quickly realize I'm in trouble. My nets are going to tear. There are more fish than we can handle. What is this preacher? A fish finder? Did he know of a new fishing spot which somehow had eluded all of us for generation after generation? Well, I don't want to give this spot away, or every fisherman on the lake will be honing in on our jackpot. So as inconspicuously as possible, I signal to our partners back on shore, James and John, and they catch our drift and they come to help. And even with all of us, we can barely get all of the fish to shore. In fact, we almost sink both of our boats in the process. They are so full of fish. Now, listen to me seriously. I have been a fisherman my whole life, as was my grandfather before me. And in all of my life and in all of the stories grandpa told, no one ever took a catch of fish on Galilee like this catch of fish. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Who was this preacher who was a way better fisher than this salty old fisherman? Why, a few more catches of this magnitude and we could sell the business and retire. But what am I thinking? A minute ago, I was cranky and I was resentful and now I'm greedy. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I am far from being a holy man or, or even a good man. And here I am in the presence of a man I can't understand. There's, there's a godliness to him, a, a foreignness, an otherness, yet an attractiveness. And it was coming close. It was pressing in on my life and, and it was too much to take. And so, Lord, I blurted out, go away from me. I am a sinful man. That's what I said, and I meant it. <laughs> Whoever he was, he, he was a man of God, and he had no business with the likes of me. I looked around at my partners, the other guys in, in the boat, waist deep in fish. Astonishment written all over their faces. And Jesus says to me, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. That was what he said. I would catch people. Wow. Jesus wanted to associate with someone like me, with people like us. 
to teach us a new trade, to, to teach us to do what he was doing, fishing for people, for God. Something in me shifted in that moment. Who I was, what my life was about. I brought in the boat, so did James and John. We were in this together, this new venture, this new life, this new mission, this new calling in search of God's kingdom. We, we left the fish there with our men. They could sell them. That would feed our family, my wife and my mother-in-law, while we were gone. I guess Jesus had thanked me for lending him my boat after all. But not just by providing a huge cash cow for my family, but, but also by believing in me enough to invite me into his company and into his mission. The truth is that all that morning, he, the preacher, had been fishing. Not just fishing for fish, but fishing for people. Fishing for me. And I guess he caught me, huh? I'm hooked. <laughs> and now he's going to teach me how to catch people too. I have no idea how, but, but that's okay. I have a pretty good teacher. And if the catch of fish we took that morning is any indication, I'm going to do all right at fishing for people. Because Jesus, my new teacher, knows where all the fish are. So that's the story about how a simple, sinful fisherman named Simon began his new life and his training in how to become a fisher of people. So what does this story have to say to us today? I want to look at uh, three implications of the story for us. And in doing so, I'm going to uh, move past the language of, of catching people, because while it spoke to, to Simon as a fisherman, um, I I don't know that it speaks to all of us quite as well. So let's think about what Jesus means by catching people. Well, he, he means finding disciples, right? Followers of him. I mean, think back over the story of Luke so far. We've been working through it these past weeks. We saw Jesus preach in Nazareth and get rejected there. We saw him last week preach in the, uh, and the week before in the synagogue of Capernaum, and he cast out a demon, and he healed Simon's mother-in-law then. And, and, and then he healed, and he casted out demons from lots of other people. And in Luke 4, 42, Luke tells us that the people try to keep Jesus from leaving Capernaum because they have their agenda for him, and, but it's not in, in touch with um, Jesus' purpose. And so Jesus leaves them behind. Because he's called to go to other places too. And so as you think about Jesus' ministry so far, who does Jesus catch so far in the story? Well, he catches Simon. And he catches James. And he catches John. And we know from the other Gospels, he catches Simon's brother Andrew as well. You see, the crowds will always be there around Jesus, nibbling here and, and nibbling there. But they don't wind up in the boat with Jesus, do they? The people that Jesus actually catches are, are those disciples who will follow him. Who devote their lives to learning the ways of his kingdom. The, the surprising upside down kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Where the poor get blessed and, and the weak get lifted up. But the rich and powerful get humbled. And where the blind come to see and the oppressed are set free. 
And the crowds will, will come and go, and Jesus does care about them. But Jesus knows that being part of the crowd isn't enough to, to learn to live the, the new ways of the kingdom with Jesus. And so Jesus gathers disciples, learners, apprentices, followers who he can invest in until they really get this new kingdom with its upside-down ways, and so that they can carry on his work into the future. As they do, if you read the second part of Luke's story, which is the book of Acts, you'll see that they do quite a good job of it. And, and so to catch people for, for Jesus is to find disciples. It's to find followers who will devote themselves to learning his ways. And, and so imagine a church sanctuary full of people who have at one point or another in their lives had some sort of conversion experience. They've, um, they, that's involved receiving Jesus as their Savior. And so here's the question about that church building full of people. Are they the crowd or are they the disciples? Are they the ones Jesus has caught? Or are they the ones um, who are still kind of around the edges, nibbling? Um, are they the ones that Jesus has, has caught, the ones who have given their lives to follow and to learn from Jesus day by day how to live in his kingdom? I'm going to leave you to think about that question. But notice also that those Jesus catches, he turns around and he teaches to catch others as well. In other words, to be a disciple of Jesus involves learning how to make disciples as well. All right, so here's the implications now, three implications of the story about being and making disciples. The first is that the invitation of discipleship is open to sinners. It's open to sinners. When Simon says in verse 8, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man, it isn't because Simon is being dramatic or self-deprecating. No, Simon is a sinner. And as Jesus draws close to him, Simon feels unmasked. He feels uncovered. Simon knows that he doesn't deserve to be close to God or have a part in what God is doing. Simon knows that he's not fit to be a citizen of the new kingdom that Jesus is talking about and bringing. Contrast Simon with the towns of Nazareth and Capernaum. Nazareth had put Jesus in a box, and when he refused to stay in their box, they tried to kill him. Capernaum had wanted to hold on to Jesus so that he could serve their interests and their needs. You see, these towns were committed to their own religious agendas, and they had a sense of entitlement as if God owed them one because they were God's faithful people. But not Simon. No, he says, go away from me, Lord. I am not deserving. I am not fit in... I do not fit into the reality that you're bringing. And that's exactly the kind of attitude that Jesus knows he can work with. Because God has sent Jesus to seek and to save sinners. Jesus came for sinners like Simon. The uh, song we sung this morning um, is by a group called the Civil Wars. They have another song called Barton Hollow. And it's about a man on the run. It's about a man who's taken his life. And in the process, he's lost his soul, as best he can tell. He thinks that he's beyond God's help or God's grace. He laments, I'm a dead man walking here. Did that full moon force my hand or that unmarked hundred grand? 
Miles and miles in my bare feet still can't lay me down to sleep. If I die before I wake, I know the Lord my soul won't take. Devil's going to follow me ere I go. Won't do me no good washing in the river. Can't no preacher man save my soul. This guy thinks he's damned, that he's without hope because of what he's done. But he, in fact, is exactly the kind of person that God's heart goes out to. That's the kind of empty-handed attitude that God can work with best. It's the kind of person Jesus came to seek and to save because God has incredible compassion for those who mess up big time and know it. God is gracious, God is forgiving, and God loves to offer new beginnings and to transform the lives of those who will give their lives over to him. That's why there's hope for Simon. And if you identify with him, then there's hope for you and for me. That we too can become Jesus' disciples and can learn to live in this new kingdom that he's bringing. Second implication, being a disciple of Jesus happens in ordinary places. Notice Jesus does much of his work outside of religious settings and worship services. Jesus does, does most of his deeds and much of his teaching where people are fishing and collecting taxes and throwing parties. Jesus loves to show up at parties. And, and so here's the thing. You, you can't avoid Jesus by staying away from church. Because through his spirit, Jesus is out there at your workplace in your neighborhood, in your home, where you hang out with your friends and loved ones. That's where Jesus loves to do his work, seeking people and teaching people and bringing his kingdom and transforming everyday life. Do you have eyes to see him in those places, to help other people see him? You know, I love being a pastor, but one of the things I find hardest about being a pastor is spending so much time in religious contexts. Because I'm missing out on all the ways that God is at work out there in people's everyday lives. A couple weekends ago, I went cabin camping with um, Josiah's Boy Scout troop. A bunch of boys and some of their dads were there, cooped up in a cabin for the weekend. And I spent the weekend hanging out with them. And, and when I go into these kinds of situations, I go very aware that God is already in those places at work among those people, in people's everyday lives. And when I show up, I might get a chance to participate in what God is doing. And so as I chatted with the dads that weekend, they talked on and on about, you know, football and their dream cars and the stock market and politics and conspiracy theories and their jobs and their families. But along the way, for a minute here and a minute there, interesting topics came up like what sin is and uh, confession and forgiveness and uh, even whether God predestines everything. And I stayed up late one night, um, the last night, talking to one of the dads in, in our sleeping bags about heaven and hell and um, who Jesus is and where we got the Bible from and, and the, his near-death experience that he had a few years ago and how to better love our wives when it's hard. And these conversations happen because people are curious about spiritual things. 
But guess what? As soon as a religious person shows up in the conversation and steps in and gets preachy and argumentative, everyone shuts right down. And so I've worked hard to listen more than I speak and to ask good questions and to keep the conversation open-ended. And this means a lot of opinions get shared that I don't agree with and, and I'm not even comfortable with. But I don't weigh in on a lot of them. Um, I don't try to correct people or score points for Jesus. Because I realize it's God who's at work. And the process is going to be messy along the way. And I speak up when it seems helpful and when people are open to listen and consider. But, but often I just listen and I try to see what part of it is just idle chatter and in what part God might be at work. Because Jesus is at work out there in people's everyday lives as he was for Simon that day by the lake. Third implication of this story. Making disciples happens best in a family that's on mission together. Let me say that again. Making disciples happens best in a family on mission. Now, when I say family, I'm not talking about a nuclear family though it certainly involves nuclear family. But nuclear families are relatively modern inventions. In Jesus' day, people lived in extended families. And uh, he lived with his um, aunts, his uncles, his cousins, as well as close uh, relationships with neighbors and workers and others. Um, And you know, it's still that way in a lot of the world. Um, And even in poorer communities in the States. For example, on the country road I grew up on, my parents have lived there for 35 years. And uh, many of the neighbors have lived there much longer than that. And my mom now takes care of an elderly uh, lady who lives down the street who has dementia. And that lady's daughter rents my mom's basement suite. And that lady's granddaughter was my sister's best friend growing up. And uh, the granddaughter lives with her husband and kids in the house behind her grandma, the lady my mom takes care of. And the granddaughter's husband is the guy that I worked for when I lived with my mom in Pennsylvania for a while. Everyone knows everyone else. Everyone's lives are all intertwined with one another. And that's the kind of world Jesus grew up in. People stuck together, they, they worked together, they feuded together too. But, but they were a community because they knew they couldn't survive on their own like us, us rich people think we can. So when Jesus is, is rejected in Nazareth, as we saw back in Luke 4, he's rejected by his family, by his, his blood relatives and his neighbors and his childhood friends. And so Jesus needs a new family. And evidently he finds that new family in Capernaum. Now, we don't know all that happened in Capernaum. We only have some highlights, but the highlights are telling. We know that Jesus attended the synagogue there in Capernaum, where the whole town went to worship. And we know that he spent time with with Simon's family, probably even staying at Simon's house, and that he healed Simon's mother-in-law there. And, And then before long, Jesus begins transforming Simon's family into a mission base, right? One evening, the whole town comes to Simon's house to be healed, to be set free. And then when everyone wants Jesus to to stay in their little town and and he's prayed it over, Jesus says, no, I have to go to the other towns too. 
But guess what? When Jesus goes, he takes his new family with him on his mission, or at least some of them. Simon follows him and his brother Andrew. So do James and John, who are brothers and fishing partners with Simon. These guys were actually like family already with one another. And Jesus becomes part of their family and gives this family a new mission. No longer fishing, but fishing for people, making disciples. Jesus is going to make these guys into disciples and he's going to teach them how to make disciples too. And they're going to succeed. Why? Because they have the best teacher. They have Jesus. And Jesus wants them to have an incredible catch. He's shown that through the miracle he did. And Jesus knows where the fish are. Now here's the question. How does any of this relate to us today? We're not fishermen. We don't live in the days of old wooden fishing boats and woven nets. Uh, or in a context where people live in extended families like they did then. We don't live in a context where rabbis gathered disciples to follow them around. But here's the thing. People are still longing for family today. The, the nuclear family has broken down to a large extent. And so people are looking to recreate a sense of family in new ways. That's why Starbucks is so popular. Not, not only because they sell great coffee, but because they sell family. They sell community. A, a place to get together with, with people you care about, to talk, to listen to music, to hang out. And it's not just Starbucks and its competitors. It's also the social, social media and uh, the local gym and the slow food movements and a hundred other movements as well. Sociologists are calling this phenomenon the new tribalism. Where people, especially younger people, are forming community with like-minded people. And here's what we know. We know that living in community, living in an extended family, whether blood-related or not, is, is a healthier way to live. Scientists now know that, the, that human beings are actually hardwired for this. That, that in their brains, they, they need it. We, we crave it as people. And we have hard data to prove that, that people who live in this kind of community actually live healthier lives. They have less heart disease, less cancer, stronger immune systems. And that kids who are raised in these kind of communities turn out better on a number of um, measures. And such communities also happen to be the best context for being disciples and for making disciples. Because again, learning to follow Jesus is not just a religious thing. It's, a, it's an everyday, ordinary thing. It's got to be worked out. It's got to be figured out in everyday life where, God, where life happens and where God is at work. That's why as a church, we've started three missional communities. And the idea of these is, is not that they become committees to plan outreach events, but rather that they become families on mission together who do life together, who, who figure out together what God is doing in and around them, and, and who are learning together to live the life of, of the kingdom, to, to be disciples of Jesus and, and to make disciples of Jesus as well. 
And by the way, that's going to be the topic of the training retreat that we're doing on February 28th and March 1st. Whether you're in a missional community or not, it's, it's how to live this stuff out practically in our lives. So here's the challenge as we close. Family on mission is the way that Jesus worked. It's the way that his kingdom comes and, and gets lived out. Missional communities are one way to do that. They're not the only way. There's other ways as well. So here's the question. Who is your family and what is their mission? And if you don't know, then what's one step that God would have you take to help you find out? Let's pray. God, we are all disciples of late 20th and early 21st century Western culture whose values are far different from your heart. They're far different from the values of your kingdom. And so we have all been discipled and learned, taught to live in a certain sort of way, which in a lot of ways isn't healthy um, and certainly isn't the way you envision the world being and becoming. And so I pray that you'd give us open hearts and that you would teach us step by step to become your disciples. We sang earlier about, I, I only do, oh, actually, we're going to sing in just a minute about, um, I only do, Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. He only said what he heard the Father say. I pray that we likewise could learn from Jesus to be that way too. Amen.